0: Hello, I'm Josephine Burton, and welcome back to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. 2022 marks the culmination of Dash's five-year investigation into European identity and what Europe means. Alongside this podcast, we've produced some real-life shows and events with artists from across Europe. One of these was the Dash Arts Forum, an installation come performance at Latitude Festival. Within it, I wanted to explore public space and the nature of community, at a time where even before Covid, people were withdrawing from public space, off the high street and into their phones. As part of the Forum, we collectively performed great speeches from across time and across Europe. We sang rabble-rousing songs and we brandished toy swords from our soapboxes. We sang the Internationale and Non Pasaran and danced like whirling dervishes to Bella Chow. To us at Dash, these songs of protest were at the heart of our community of artists and activists and it has inspired me to devote our series to protest music, entering the genre through the three songs that particularly mean something to Dash.
1: Changer de base Nous ne sommes rien Soyez
0: The first episode takes on the Internationale. The lyrics to the Internationale were written in France in 1873 and have been adapted and sung across the world for the last 150 years. In English, it was most recently given a makeover by the folk musician and activist Billy Bragg, whose version we'd sung at our forum. I asked Billy how he first came across the
2: song during the miners' strike, particularly in 1984 and 1985 in the UK. I was so that was kind of my political education, really, because I didn't go to university. So coming into contact with more radical artists, more radical performers, and the performance of more radical um, songs—it wasn't really. It was just. uh, The International, it was those other songs as well, anti fascist songs, Bella Chow, you mentioned, um, No Passaran, a whole new culture. Um, So I had that relationship with it, coming to it and kind of during the context of the minor strike.
0: With what lyrics? What lyrics were they that you were singing at the time? The lyrics that I uh,
2: heard and kind of took to be the lyrics were what I later found out were specifically the English lyrics, the English language translation. Arise ye starvings from your slumbers, arrive ye criminals, uh, prisoners of want for freedom in result, now thunders and here ends the age of cant. Always a... Difficult with that because want doesn't rhyme with can. I'm a bit of a pedant when it comes to those things. So I tended to hum along and just sing the chorus uh, if it was uh, <laughs> sung together. And then in 1989 at the Vancouver Folk Festival, I was having my, uh, my lunch in the, in the artist's tent and Pete Seeger come and sat down opposite me, who I'd known from sort of earlier uh, Woody Guthrie workshops and also done some shows with him in, in East Germany. He come and sat down. He said, Billy, I'm... Um, I'm going to sing the Internationale on Sunday night um, at the close of the festival in solidarity with the students in Tiananmen Square, because it was just around that time. It must've been a week after, a week or two after. And of course they had been singing the Internationale. So he said, "I'm, I'm going to sing that in solidarity with the students and Bruce Coburn is going to come on and sing the Canadian version and someone else is going to come on and sing the Spanish version. And I'd love you to come on and sing the English version. And I was like, oh, Pete, come on, give me a break. Those lyrics are so archaic. They don't even mean anything anymore, do they, really? So he said, well, why don't you write some new ones? And there's some people in, in, in folk music you can't tell to get lost. And Pete Seeger's one of them. When old man Pete puts it on you, it's like a professor putting it on you. And before I could really complain anything about it, he he picked up a flyer off the table with the blank back of it. And on the back of it, he got a pencil and he sang quietly to himself underneath his breath, the first verse in French and the chorus in French, you know. So he's like, you know, C'est la finale. So he then wrote down, you know, what it was in English and kind of gave it to me. a a literal translation of the the original lyrics, first verse and chorus, and said to me, you've got 24 hours, see what you can do. (laughs) So 24 hours later, there I was on stage singing a a verse and a chorus of uh, the Internationale, a new lyrical verse and chorus.
0: Before Billy tells us more about his Internationale, I want to put the history of protest songs in context. We reached out to John Street, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and the Principal Investigator for Our Subversive Voice, a new project researching the use of song to register protest from the 1600s to the present day. Who better to introduce the genre?
3: There's a long English tradition of the protest song. Um, which goes way back before 1945, and which has, you know, stands uh, comparison with what you get from the States and many other countries. And so that's where the project came from, an attempt to show that actually there are at least 400 years of English protest singing that uh, people should know about, uh, because it's a very important form of political expression. That was the thought anyway.
0: Are you able to give us a like a potted history of those 400 years? (laughs) On one leg. No.
3: <laughs> no. I mean, in one sense, you could say, you know, if you go back. So the first song we have in our, we, what we did was we selected 250 songs that sort of cover the period. There's another 500 songs we've listed. And there are, of course, thousands, many more that we could have listed. But with these 250, we thought, well, they kind of tell the story of that protest song over time. And what's noticeable is the first song we have it from 1603 is a song complaining at the fact that King James is selling knighthoods to the rich, and there's a kind of you know a, a verse which is saying you know if you've got money you can get on in this world, and you're thinking, well we're still complaining about that, and that's still what protest songs are about in the in the in the in our current decade where the the giving a, you know selling of knighthoods or peerages and so forth is still going on, and so there's this continuity and the continuity of disdain for the. Um, the ruling class or the political class. That's a constant over the history of the protest song. But then on the other hand, you know, the, the songs that complain about the monarchy, which were very common in the earlier centuries of, of our history, are much less common now. Uh, and the kind of complaints that people make in protest songs today are, are more general perhaps in some way than of in previous eras. So you can see there are changes in the form of the song, and you can see changes in the topic, and you can see changes in in the forms of expression that people use. But they're still singing about the way their world is organised, you know. And that seems to me an important factor of political communication.
0: Are there? There are presumably there are quite a lot of reasons for those changes. How much of it is to do with distribution? Because how were how were those songs distributed in the seventeenth century? Um, how do people hear about them? How do people hear them?
3: One one of the reasons we start in sixteen hundred for our history is actually that's the point at which a a commercial market in in songs comes into existence i mean london is perhaps the first place where music is formally commercialized in the form of you know public so, published song sheets so that in a way it marks the for us anyway the period that we're covering the, the one where you know mm-hmm. th- th- you trade songs and you publish songs and you make songs available for a a, a large audience of course there is a much longer history of the orally con- uh, distributed songs, but in terms of providing formal mechanisms to bring songs into existence, then that, that's so important. And and one of the and what you're saying is very important that that understanding how proto songs or you know political song in general circulate it has to be not just that there are people out there with a political conscience who want to say stuff. Uh, they have to be given the means to do that. Mm. There has to be audiences created in order for them mm. to be heard. Uh, there's a, ho- And then there are regulations and, and, and censorship and all sorts of other things going on to make these songs available or, or to suppress them. So the, the history of the protest song or the history of the political song is a history of all sorts of interactions between various facilitators and, and those who seek to stop the circulation of those songs.
0: Uh, it's so interesting. And how much of the um, distribution happened through, like, through, through lyrics being distributed to, to, to well-known popular songs and distributed by kind of by paper, and how much of it were troubadours going around singing, you know, their own songs and doing it live, you know, that live kind of, kind of more oral handing over of material.
3: I think, I mean, a, a great deal of this is is it takes as you say the oral form, and and what's very noticeable, uh, certainly for much of the early history of the Proto song is the ways in which it it borrows tunes. Uh, the, The songs that we hear Often, by the way, anonymously written. We don't know who all the authors of many of the early songs are. These are they borrow tunes, and so the, you see several songs reappearing. Uh, several songs reappearing, each using the same tune. I mean, that still happens to an extent. You still can get that even today. But the that was very much the the way in which songs circulated in the early days. So the people who knew song tunes or you know hymn tunes or whatever was being used immediately could pick up what the, what the song. Uh, sounded like but also of course a lot of the lyrics were without musical accompaniment and so people made up their own tunes to to fit the words as it were in those in those in that period as well one of the things finally if we we talk about a lot in this project is is the lyrics and how you make sense of them I mean because there is a tendency in a lot of discussion of music and particularly in relation to politics to make everything about the lyrics that you know it's the words that tell the story and as anybody who actually listens to music knows that Sometimes you don't hear the lyrics for a long time. You just like a song and you sort of get caught up in it. You couldn't repeat the lyrics. And often you may even mishear those lyrics. So I think there's a danger of making too much of the lyrics. I mean, it varies, of course, with different types of song. And obviously in contemporary raps, so for example, the lyrics are much more important than that. it might be in a, in a traditional love song or something. But even when you're, you're working with lyrics, it's what they sound like in conjunction with a melody and a rhythm that really gives them meaning. Uh, they don't have, you know, they are not read as poetry. They don't exist on the page. They exist in, in in the communication of music. And I think that's what's important so that, you know, songs that might not sound terribly political can, can perhaps acquire that simply by the, the, the mood they create or the sentiments they seem to be evoking.
0: Or well, the context in which they're heard.
3: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, famously, you know, the... Uh, the children in Soweto protesting at the fact they were being forced to learn Afrikaans singing Pink Floyd's I Don't Want No Education is a classic example of a song that you know existed in a quite different context being used here to protest. And then other extraordinary examples, the songs from Les Miserables being sung in Geziya Park in Turkey in protest at what the Turkish government is doing. You know, the, these are songs that weren't written for these protests and weren't intended for that particular context, but acquire dramatic political context. And there's, you know, when Mrs. Thatcher dies, there's a song from The Wizard of Oz, which was nothing to do with Mrs. Thatcher or the Conservative government or anything else, becomes an, uh, uh, the protest at at, at at what she had uh, done to, to Britain as it was seen by the protesters.
0: Wow, what was that song?
3: Yeah, I knew you'd ask me that.
0: <laughs> it was inevitable, wasn't it? The
3: witch is dead.
0: Oh, ding dong, the witch is dead. Of course it must ding-dong, be. the
3: witch is dead, yeah.
0: So what are the ingredients, would you say then, of a, of a song that can transcend its place and transcend its time to have a power, to have a lasting power?
3: I mean, the, I think you make different, you would want to make distinctions between songs that are, are sung collectively or so, have that, uh, and, and clearly there's a certain kinds of, you know, basic choral, familiarity or whatever that, that, that is picked on so a song like we shall overcome is one that you know it's very easy for people to know it and to sing it and then you find it being Sung in all the extraordinary places, like for example, my team Norwich were being beaten by Aston Villa, and the Aston Villa supporters were singing "We Shall Overcome." <laughs> they they were winning. I don't know why they were singing that; <laughs> it didn't need. It. But I mean, the idea here is a song that is easy to accompany and and uh, a, a protest or a march. And I think that's you know that sort of functional role is very important. But then there are other other songs that you know aren't to be sung in that sort of collective form, but still have a a, a tremendous resonance over time and you know something like Peggy Seeger's I'm going to be an engineer you know it, it's it as a kind of song about you know, you know a, f- a feminist protest you might say it's still as resonant today as it was when it was composed in the early 1970s or whatever.
0: and that and that is the lyrical content.
3: Yeah, I think there it is. It, and 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 what was interesting—that song was written as part of a a, a theatre performance, a kind of satirical theatre performance. And in a way, there were there was an audience there to listen to the lyrics and to be, as it were, swept up in 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 its content. Uh, and that may make makes a difference for, to the and um, gives greater prominence to the lyrics in a way that perhaps other kinds of songs might might not require that or depend upon that.
0: by John's summary of the ideal protest song, one with a catchy, uplifting, marching tune and lyrics which continue to have resonance today, we track down Robert Service, a British historian and academic who's written extensively on the Soviet Union, to give us a little more background on the Internationale itself. I'm really keen to have some um, kind of historical background and context for its origins and then its ongoing use and application and and um, what it what it meant to people over the 20th century can you give me a little potted history please
1: yeah well it i mean it was a, an amazingly popular song among socialists at the turn of the century the words were written by uh, someone who'd taken part in the struggle of the paris commune of the 1870s uh, and it got it got picked up in that way and um originally it was sung to the Marseillaise, which is a French revolutionary marching song, and um, identified with the French state in fact, so the decision was taken then that a different melody should be used and they they used another French revolutionary uh, song for soldiers called the chant du départ, the uh, song of the leaving the Song of the Departure. And that's, that's the tune that, that we know it by now. So it was sort of assembled uh, from two different angles and it was immediately hugely successful. So it got sent overseas uh, to the other socialist parties and it got identified with the uh, Second Socialist International hence the name of the, the song itself. i tell you what it used to happen. At the beginning of a congress, people would stand and sing it. People would feel that that song stood for getting rid of all of the privations and um, economic and material difficulties that they faced in their country, but linking themselves to uh, socialists' Overseas, so it was a great linking song. And by God, it's it's a fantastic melody. So people enjoyed singing it. I mean, that's if it hadn't been such a great tune. The words, the words changed over the years. They they weren't the same words uh, as the original because they're a bit clunky. Uh, and I can see why Billy,
0: just in the original French, they're quite clunky.
1: Yeah, uh, and they get outdated uh, because we don't use language about uh, Caesar and um, the like to refer to our rulers anymore. So it, it was an adapt, an adaptable set of lyrics.
0: Uh, interestingly, we, we had a great chat with um, John Street, who has just created this amazing uh, website called Subversive Voice, where he's collecting English protest songs. And he talked about how, it, how often uh, lyrics are put to known songs because yeah. there's something very e- you know, easy. You can adopt new lyrics for a song that yeah. you're comfortable with already. So presumably that's the evolution, that, that explains the evolution and the joining together of these two songs.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I mean, that's what happened to folk songs over the centuries after all. No, you know, folk songs don't have a permanent lyric. So why should a socialist political song? I approve of the adaptation I absolutely approve.
0: To come back to your point about how that some of these lyrics were quite updated, I've just found that lyric, the original one in the English translation, neither God nor Caesar nor Tribune. There are no supreme saviours, neither God nor Caesar nor Tribune.
1: Yeah, you imagine singing that, eh?
0: I'm ah. sure it sounds slightly better in, front, in French, but but ha, ha, was it, because it was later adopted as the first, na- first anthem of the Soviet Union? Yeah, year, it was.
1: It? it was. Socialists in Russia, they couldn't sing it in public before 1917, uh, because it was so identified with opposition to the Tsars. So when the Tsar was overthrown in 1917, all the socialist parties, not just the communists, they all sang it on every possible occasion. They first sang it to commemorate the dead in the February Revolution of 1917. And they went on singing it and playing it. The military bands learnt the tune and uh, they played it outside the palace that Nicholas II, the deposed Tsar, uh, was confined in after the February Revolution. And they really thoroughly irritated him because his daughters started whistling it because it's such a catchy tune. They started whistling it round the house. He, he, he was really thoroughly teased. By the military bands um, the the uh, all the socialist groups were attracted by the tune and after the communists came to power, they altered the words they made they updated them they made them a, a lot less clunky in the Russian The Russian version is more straightforward and less sort of less uh, floridly poetic, and that anthem. In the Soviet Union, it was known as a hymn. Uh, It was a sort of almost a sacred song Uh, that lasted until nineteen forty-four.
0: I've got visions of it with the Red Army. I mean, I must have. I think I've heard versions of the Red Army recordings of that song. It's just, it's definitely still to me when I hear the internationally. I, I immediately go to kind of, I'm immediately transported to the Soviet Union.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and um, all the communist parties all around the world, and Labour parties enjoyed singing it. But the thing was, you have to bear in mind always, the name of the song, the name of the hymn is the International, Internationale. And, and when the Soviet Union became more oriented um, towards itself and away from the world socialist movement, uh then it was no longer fully appropriate so stalin had to commission a new um a new state hymn as it was called and he ditched the international
0: that's a totally fascinating insight when was it was it officially ditched uh,
1: 1944 uh he also ditched the communist international itself so um It wasn't just the the hymn that was, or the the song that was got rid of, it was also the whole of the Comintern, the Communist International, that... United all the communist parties of the world.
0: But just just to ask you a little bit about the language and evolution of the language, um, it's all about hope. It's like you know, we will we will fight, we will get there, we will achieve our aims. Let's keep going, the last struggle. But once you've realised your aims in, in 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 the Soviet Union, and once the kind of communism, you know, in those tw- in those early twenties and thirties, and this was the anthem. Did they change that kind of future idealism? Did it become more about kind of living in the present? Yes,
1: it did. That was the first thing they did when. When they came to power about the song. Uh, they commissioned new words uh, to make it more in the present because they they thought we are now in power. We are building socialism. So they changed the tense from the f- from the future more towards the present. Yeah, all the way through the history of this song, the words have changed over the years. And um, I think Tony Benn was a complete. Well, fool to say don't don't mess with the words because if he'd known anything about the history of the song, he would have recognised that it it has to be updated.
0: So, so you, I don't know this Tony Benn story. Was he critical of of Billy Bragg's version? Yeah, he
1: was critical of anybody who mucked around with the words that he'd known when he first uh, entered the Labour Party. He was a traditionalist, uh, but he didn't understand that tradition involves. Development and evolution.
0: Can we just come back to that point you were just making about Stalin oh, and yeah. 1944? It, it seems to me, because having you know, I, having spent five years at Dash thinking about what it means to be live in, live, on, live in the Soviet Union and to live in its shadows, to make that act towards the end of World War II, while, while you know that the Soviet Union have sided with with the Allies and they're fighting the Nazis together, um, it, it seems like a very weird time for Stalin to make to, to disrupt that alliance. Through change in the anthem. Do you know do you know anything about why it was that point? I mean, I can understand post war, but, but or even pre-war before well, you know, before before they entered it, but just then it's really fascinating.
1: Well, during the war during the war, the Stalin administration recognised that it had to turn more to patriotic appeals to the population in order to stir up the enthusiasm for fighting the Nazis. And as hitler started to be defeated also stalin wanted to assure the western allies the usa and the uk that he ruled a state that was a normal state that didn't have pretensions to taking over the whole of the world so for those two reasons he didn't feel it was appropriate to have a a national anthem that was all about the workers of the world, throwing out the governments of the world. So he he was a devious and calculating, uh, and very very intelligent dictator. And so he he ran a competition. I mean, he did he, he he didn't muck around with this. People had to send in their tunes, and then he himself edited the words of. Of the new state hymn, and it was only it was only got rid of in the nineteen nineties. That new state hymn is after the fall of the Soviet Union.
0: Fascinating insight, Robert. I'm really pleased I asked you that question. I mean, I'm just thinking, i was just looking back at the lyrics. You know, you know that, that line that I quoted earlier about Caesar. You know, mm. there is that line: "No one will give us deliverance, not God, not a czar, and not a hero. We'll achieve liberation yeah. with our own hand." And um, maybe there's a, there's something about Stalin as the great leader of that time also, that maybe he didn't, you know, maybe it was yes. his own face in it by saying that it didn't yeah. need a leader.
1: Yeah. Of course, the word czar didn't appear in the original French version. There's an, there's an example of how the text yeah. changes depending on who's singing it in, and in what country they are. It came into it with the Russian version. And then it went out with the word czar in it to some of the other countries as well and some of the other languages.
0: So the song lived on in, in the kind of in, in communist communities and socialist communities post-war. It, has a, it had an ongoing relevance.
1: Yeah, I, and I think um, uh, I, I went to a funeral about 10 years ago uh, of a man who um, had left the Communist Party uh, and they played the Antonassian uh, Al at his funeral. And you could look at look around the mourners, and you could see how much it meant to them this this he was a very very old man when he died, how much um their youth had been spent singing this song uh um so even though even though the song was was ditched by uh the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, it lived on in the minds of people who had been communists uh, before the war. And, of course, the Internationale still was sung by socialist parties and uh, Labour parties around the world anyway, so it always had been. It always had been.
0: Are there particular verses or lines that you love? Well, I
1: think... the, the, the I, I just like, like the opening. Arise ye... Ye downtrodden, ye exploited. Um, it, it's uh, it's very moving. It, it's uh, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a song that that speaks speaks about the the people who are are done down, downtrodden, exploited, oppressed. Um, in a way, it's not a classical protest song because it is so much a, a song of hope isn't it it's it's not just saying the world's rotten uh, the world's against us it's saying we can do something ab- about this this world and we can change it it's not the call of people who have given up hope it's uh, it's not the call of people who are asking to be pitted it's it's a call to action by the poor, by the employees, uh, who are fed up with the way the legal system is against them, the fiscal system is against them, the wage system is against them. You know, I think it's a great song of hope.
2: Stand up, all victims of oppression For the tyrants fear your might Don't cling so hard to your possession have if you have no rights
0: Let's go back to Billy Bragg and the origin story of his version of this great song of hope, which we began with at the Vancouver Folk Festival.
2: Subsequently, I mean, you've got to remember 1989, that was summer 1989, in the autumn of 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. And suddenly the, the Cold War was coming to an end. And in, in 1990, You know, it seemed to me that in the um, urge to rid the world of uh, Stalinism and totalitarianism, which had been a mark of Soviet communism, all of our political left-wing culture was going to go in the skip, everything, not just the really bad parts, not just the totalitarian aspects of it, but everything. And I thought that one of the ways to perhaps um, salvage some of that would be to update the lyrics of the Internationale, to actually write another two verses and record uh, a new lyric for the 21st century. So I started, you know, coming to writing stuff and I thought I'm, I'm going to have to, I mean, you know, have I really got the right to do this?
1: Mm.
2: You know, it's a bit of a punk rock thing to do. This is an old tradition. I'm really, so... I started going to see people I respected, to ask them, not for permission, but to just see if they thought it was a bad idea. And among the first people, obviously Pete thought it was a good idea, so I had Pete Seeger on <laughs> side, but I went to see um, Ewan McColl and Peggy Seeger. So I, I rang them up and went over there, and we sat down, and I and I sang the lyrics to them, and, and Ewan thought they were great, and Peggy had some suggestions, which is always handy. So... I came away, you know, having modified my lyrics a bit. And and then I went to see uh, Dick Gokken, Probably the most, uh, of all the communists i worked with, he's the one who most understands what we do. He's a musician himself. So I trusted him implicitly. And he eventually, he liked it as well. He thought it was a good idea. And then he sang on the album with me. He sang on, I made an album with this song on it, the Alley on it. And so in 1990, I, I put out a, a, an album of political songs. Uh, called the Internationale, which, you know, I I got a a choir and uh, a brass band together, and we recorded it. And uh, I'm pleased to say it it struck a chord with people. And now most often when I'm – if I'm out anywhere and there's someone singing the Internationale, they're they're often singing my lyrics, Mm. which is a great honour to me, a great privilege. And also – but they always say to me, we've changed them slightly. And I say, well, that's okay. That's how it works. That's the process, you know. It's not a, written in stone, so I wouldn't have been able to change it. So whatever you feel fits where you are, I mean, that's a, that's the a positive thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke to John Street, he's just done this amazing uh, website of, of political songwriting, and he was really talking about that. We're well, great uh, love, really. That is the point of that is the point of these these songs, these protest songs. Is they're ever yeah. changing and they're ever ever relevant and it's lovely to feel that that i could completely see how you have updated the lyrics i'm just looking at them now i mean so there's a lot of new there's a lot of new ideals and ideas that you've put into them
2: i did try to re- retain some of the original english language lyric there's a bit in the last verse um no savior from on high delivers and i tried to fit that in with the the final line you know although they offer us concessions change will not come from above yeah. you know i tried to underscore each verse with a with a a strong... Idea, you know, the first verse ends. Freedom is merely privilege extended, unless enjoyed by one and all. The idea of equality. That obviously, internationalism is a key aspect to that.
0: But on that lyric, actually, I was, I was just thinking about that line. Actually, when you were saying that it came out with the end of the end of communism, because now that that completely that now makes a lot of sense to me. That the you know, communism has failed in 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 the, in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc, but the ideals that they stood stood yeah. for need to continue.
2: It was complicated because in that year, nineteen. I did some gigs in Czechoslovakia And they were just coming out Of the, the Cold War Just coming out of the Warsaw Pact And I sang the International And people booed And I had to talk Well I kind of expected a little bit of that Because it was synonymous to them with the Soviets But the point I was trying to make was That we can't throw all this stuff away You know we can't just suddenly say Everything that happened That's in any way connected with this In, in the tradition has got to go And, and fortunately my My um, Czechoslovakian translator was also a musician, and he was an old guy older than me, and he really got it because we talked a lot about it beforehand. I said, "Look, you know I want to sing the international. do you think this is a good idea?" He said, "Well, they'll probably boo you, but it's worth saying that we can't just throw everything in. you know the point you're trying to make is a really valid point. I think it's worth it." so we did you know we did do that, and he and I made that case from the stage that that you know some of these things were worth preserving and worth um updating. Um, and so that's how I came to write a second verse that's more about the environment, that's more about, you know, um, the vanity of nations, that idea. I wanted to give it that a bit of a, a green uh, angle as well, because I think that's obviously, you know, broadly speaking, in, in the most broadest sense, I suppose, in a non-political sense, the international is an evocation of the common good. A notion of the common good, which all progressive politics are based on. So, I think the climate crisis is an absolute key situation that requires us to act in the common good and to understand that. So, um, I wanted to put that that in the song. So that was that was there in tradition as well. And it wasn't all just about ideology. That it's about broader broader issues.
0: Yeah, I, I was definitely feeling that through the lyrics that it's both political and I love that you brought in the racist ignorance because that wasn't none of those ideals, let racist ignorance be ended, but respect makes the empires fall. I really love those ideas because they weren't there in eighteen sixty. I mean, we know they when weren't. we talked about no. racism.
2: I mean that was one of the problems that the it was a kind of a one uh Perspective song, the the international in its original version, it didn't really have to me. It didn't have that broader connection and rec- recognition of imperialism, recognition of um, environmentalism. Uh, you know, it had the struggle in there. The struggle was absolutely clear in there. You know, there's war, there's chains. You know, there's uh, the whole. Uh, uh, you know, the the striking while the iron is hot. You know, which I tried to get a bit of that in my final verse. But I think it just needed to be a bit more humanist. I hope my communist mm. friends aren't disappointed
0: by that. Yeah, I, I think it is humanist. But you've stuck with the comrades. The comrades are there. So comrades come rally. There's nods to that. Nods to that world is not gone. I I, I tell you, I, I really, um, there are two, I mean, I love so much about your lyrics, but there are two things that I find really interesting. One is that... Um, the line when you've changed this the chorus this is the final struggle and you and um and you've changed that to you know for the struggle carry, carries on and i mean it's interesting for me for, for having just heard you say that, that that was a nod to that was a reminder that we should stick by those ideals or the communism has failed to me i i'd read that as something else which spoke to something that i had a conversation with john street about which was the point of protest music, right? I was like, I said to him at some point, I was like, do do you think people really think they're going to make a change by going on out on the streets? And, you know, is the point, the journey is the point, or is the point to have some kind of action that happens off the back of your protest? And we ended up coming to the conclusion together that it's about the journey. It's about getting on the streets and uniting your voices in song, and that's the point, really. It's reminding ourselves that we're human, and and um and I love that you're that you've got that in some way in your lyrics. It's just about continuing; it just carries on.
2: It does because I, I feel very much it's a tradition. You know, I feel that the International is part of that tradition. Obviously, the the um, John Street's project is manifest of the tradition. You know, you can see it there. You know, you can understand from that that because it's focused specific, specifically on England, um, that there's always been a tradition of dissent in this country, as strong as the um, imperial tradition, as strong as the establishment tradition, there's been a strong... Uh, that, that thread of dissent goes all the way back to Magna Carta. You know, yeah. the, the attempt to hold ab the absolute power of of the monarchy to account. And obviously it's there in the Civil War, it's there in the Reformation, the absolute power of the Pope. You know, that that dissenting tradition is absolutely key to our society, our the society that we live in. And so when people do get out on the streets, for me they're there, it's that's an expression of patriotism. They care so much about their society that they're willing to go out on the streets and and stand together and express their solidarity around an issue. You know, that's they're the they're the things that I think are most empowering, and that's what music can can do. It can help you to recharge your activism, so that you go away and think, yeah, you know, I'm not the only person who gives a about this stuff. You know, we all need a bit of that. You know, when mm-hmm. I come when I do a gig and I finish off by, you know, I might finish with "There's power in a union," and everyone, you know, puts their fists in the air and everything. I know what it does for me; it banishes my cynicism and fires up my mm-hmm. activism. But what I'm trying to do is make the audience feel the same. I'm trying to get make the audience take away some of that expression of solidarity home with them because they might be living in a place where they're, they feel isolated because of their politics. They might be living in a – you know, working in a place where there's kind of like, you know, casual sexism and racism and homophobia, and they need to feel that there are people in their town who give a shit about this stuff. And from the gig, from that expression, because all those people are singing together, that, you know, the solidarity of song gives them something to, you know – the impetus that we all need to live up to the courage of our convictions,
0: and to me, it's not just about um, being personally empowered and uplifted and, and, and carry on that fight, but I think it's a reminder that we're part of a community. There is something about choral singing in unison, which is is, is also so important. It's not it's not just us alone on us on our journey.
2: That's very very important. But I think it, the interesting thing is, I think it happens on on every level. You know, imagine you are, you go to see Adele. Adele's your favourite singer. And, you know, a new album is about divorce and you've been through something similar to what she's been through. And you've got a particular song that she, that does that amazing thing that songs can do, which is it says something that you can't quite put into words. And you've got that song. And that when you hear that song, it, it makes you feel that you're not alone and you're fired up. You go and see her live, she's singing it, the person who opened the door to this feeling for you, you're singing it, and maybe 10,000 other people are singing it. And all of a sudden you feel that whatever emotions you've connected with this are are totally justified, are totally accepted. Mm. And I think that works the same with political songs as well. When you go on a march, you realise that the anger that you have is not weird, it's not isolated. The manifestation is as much for the marchers as it is for the rest of society to be able to all march together. And, and I've been on some incredibly powerful marches—the Iraq War marches, the Me Too marches. They're, you know, they're not just about we're protesting here. They're about we're being visible. We want you to see us. This is, this is empowering what we're doing. We're, we're, and song plays an important role in that because it can work in the context of a, a social evening out. You go out to a gig, and that song suddenly. Oh, fires you up when you come outside and you think, "Oh wow, yeah, I have a different perspective on things now." And it's hard, you know. It's not many places you feel that. You know, you can't get this online. I took it out for nothing.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's about being absolutely being live in the room, in the moment, or on the streets with other people, totally hearing them. To that end, then you you wrote uh, you wrote lyrics for the twenty first century. Do you, do you do you is it still in your repertoire today? Does it feel different? Sing I mean, are you still performing it?
2: I am still performing it, but it's one of those songs. That it's uh, it's all about the context. You can't just chuck it in every night, you know. It needs to. There's a moment when when you step up and the Internationale fits exactly what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, if we were on a political campaign and we were going around calling people together and, you know, needed something to sing at the end. Yeah, that's exactly what you need. That's the song. Everyone stands up and sings internationally together, but not in a, in a just an ordinary gig. You need, it needs to be the right night. You know what I mean? Something needs to have happened that puts the, the internationality into the context of that particular gig. It's more easy to play a song like There's Power in a Union because there's often something going on to do with industrial action when you're traveling around. So you can connect it to that. You know, without context, it just becomes a song. It needs yeah. the emotional, needs the emotional feeling of something that's happening to give it that context. That's what's important about any song. Like No Pass Around, the same. You know, it's a, they they need that emotional context that people get stirred, you know, fired up about something that's happened.
0: So, how do you remember the last time you sang it?
2: Ooh. Well, it's been because it's been so long since I've done any it gigs. Mm. It's kind of like a. Probably It will probably be at Toll Puddle, I would imagine. You know, I played the Toll Puddle Martyrs Festival a few times and there's often choirs there that sing it. You know, we march and sing together and I kind of join in and try and watch that I don't trip up over the lyrics and get them wrong because uh, they've tweaked them a little bit. <laughs> but that's cool. That's really cool. <laughs> but it's always been like that. I mean, when we recorded it, I had a line in there that Peggy had a problem with. I had a line in there based on a image from the – Hungarian uprising of a guy standing in front of a russian tank with his shirt open like that saying like kill me you know i don't care kill me it's a very very powerful image yeah it was in the first verse We 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 bare our breasts before their armor and peggy said that that's, that's two different meanings and i was like oh yeah I'm not so sure about that. And then when we came to record it, the women in the choir had a word with me about it. And I was like, yeah, okay, I've got to change this. So that's how it became we stand unbowed before the run. But you have to be open to that. You have to be open to those kind of things, you know. I'm quite up, you know, when those people say they prefer the original, I'm, I'm like, fine, you know, I have no problem with that at all. I'd feel the same if someone tried to update the lyrics of Jerusalem. I'd still love the original more than anything anyone could write better than Blake. So. I'm just trying to make it accessible to more people, the more people Mm. feel they can connect with it. And I think the archaic nature of the original English language lyric, which is it's a bit hard to sing. Whoever wrote it was trying to, was thinking more about ideas than they were thinking about uh, cadence. When I was writing mine, I was trying to put cadence first and then bring ideas in that fit that cadence that that had power, you know. Freedom is merely privilege extended. and bomb and a boom, bomb. It's right on the nose, you know. Change will not come from above. You see how it just fits, you know, whereas each of those at the forge must do their duty. It's kind of got a one-two word in the same place, one
0: word too many in there. I'm just thinking kind of lyrically it's like, it's all the long it's the long notes as you're hitting those are you thinking about you're thinking about the collective singing experience right yep. to make to make it to make people you know there's something about the spacing and there's something almost about yep. the marching of that as a rhythm yep. that you're thinking definitely. about
2: a few years ago i i was commissioned to write an english language translation of the ode to joy from beethoven's ninth symphony for some children to sing at the reopening of the Royal Festival Hall because they were having trouble with the English language translation of the song because it's about the daughters of Elysium and it wasn't really connecting with them. So I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, happy, I'm happy to have a go at it. And the the music teacher, at the, as the meeting broke up where we were discussing it, the music teacher said, look, if you are going to write it, make sure it's all the note, the words are on the notes, you know, Da 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 Don't you know, fancy it up. So I just went away and and wrote, you know, um see now like a Phoenix rising from the rubble of the war. And that's really straightforward so it can be easily sung. And it's basically the international to a different tune, but then I'm Billy Bragg, so what do you expect? What do you expect to get from me? You're not going to get a jolly, uh, you know, something jolly. So, yeah. So it, the thing about when you're working with a song that is so well known, if you can uh, fit the the uh, the scansion of it, it's like a scaffolding. Everyone's wearing a scaffolding. You know, the greatest um, writer of political songs, Joe Hill, used to write his lyrics to hymns. Because everybody knew the tune of the hymn, so you didn't. When you got the lyric, you didn't need to get the music as well. You didn't need to read the music. You just need to say it at the top, the name of the hymn that you sang the tune to, and you could immediately sing it. You know, if it said, you know, "Onward, Christian Soldiers," and there's a new lyric to it, you can, and and providing the lyric is right on the scansion, you know, it's that's a great way to spread ideas.
0: Yeah. Yeah, work with something somewhat familiar to people already so they feel a yeah. bit safe and then hit them with the hit them with the ideas.
2: Rather than here's a completely new song that you're going to have to familiarise yourself with that no one's really sure of, here's a, a lyric that we can all sing now that I've written to this tune that we're all familiar with.
0: How much do you encourage that collective singing at your gigs? I mean, how, how important is it to your performance?
2: It's very important to my performance. Sometimes um, when I'm singing Between the Wars... I get, the, the audience kind of treat it a bit like a hymn, and they all sing along, but not very loud they kind of <laughs> it's like they're in church and If I can hear that they're singing it uh, on the very last verse, I will lean right off the mic so that my voice is almost at the same level as theirs, and they become aware that everybody's singing it, and then they kind of pick it up and they kind of go with it, and I leave them to sing it and have a moment where they themselves are all connected with one another. It's not they're connected through me anymore. Mm. They're actually connected to to one another. And that that moment in that particular song has a lot more of an emotional weight to them all singing um, the choruses of New England at the end, because I let them sing the choruses of New England, but by the end of the show, they're all just singing at the top of their voices mad. But that kind of hymnal moment where they're singing Between the Wars, the last verse, you know, call up the craftsman, bring me the draftsman, build me a path from cradle to grave. I'll give my consent to any government that does not deny a man a living wage. They sing that together. It kind of gives them possession of the song for a while, and I, like, I kind of like that. So I'm very much attuned to that if that's happening. Mm. I, I, you know, it gives me shivers, and I'm hoping it mm. does the same to them as well.
0: Yeah, and, and, and they get the ownership over the, over it.
2: Which they should have, you know, which they yeah. should have. It shouldn't just belong to – it should be a communal thing.
0: Lily, I've got a couple more questions about internationality. Do you think it changed you, that writing and that experience? I mean, like you you dedicated a whole album to, to that song.
2: Yeah, I had to run that particular flag up the flagpole so people knew that although the Cold War had ended, I hadn't thought, okay, that's it, it's all good now, forget it. Let's go and reload it because that's kind of what happened. You know, all those other people that I <laughs> – Been working through with a minor strike, who I thought were on side with me, uh, all of a sudden were like, oh, right, sorted, all done, we've fixed this. Now we don't, you know, we don't have to worry about this shit anymore. And I was like, "Mm, not really. So the Internationale um, was quite an important record in that sense for me, because at the time, everything was going back towards pop music out of that period in the 1980s when there'd been quite political music. It was all going back towards pop. So that was my way of putting the market down and, and taking something like the International that was so central to what had gone on before, so central to the idea of the, you know, Communist International. You know, I, I couldn't have chosen a more, you know, it's like choosing the Empire State Building or, you know, St. Paul's Cathedral. You couldn't think of a more obvious uh, example to to riff off. So that's why it had to be the internationality for me. It wouldn't have worked with the red flag, it wouldn't have worked. With No Passeran or uh, other songs mm-hmm. like that, the Internationale was the kind of edifice that it seemed to me was crumbling or that was under attack. So it was my way of saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm carrying on. If no, I, I can see the struggle carries on. I can see this isn't sorted. That uh, you know, capitalism might think it's won, but that doesn't mean it's at the end of these problems. One of the interesting things is, and this is, I think that this happens to be a positive thing, is the language that we were using in the nineteen eighties. The language of Marxism doesn't mean anything to anyone anymore. I don't use that language anymore. I talk about, you know, empathy and fighting against cynicism and things like that. The problem is that the things that Marxism was trying to uh, uh, address have not been resolved. So we have to find a new way to. Uh, talk about those things, a new language, if you like, you know, and, and the Internationale, the whole album was my first stab at trying that new album, you know, but in the next album, William Bloke, I was talking about socialism of the heart. I was talking about politics that comes le- not from their head. It's not, you know, all about ideology, but that comes from the heart. It's all about empathy. Mm-hmm. I was trying to find a, a, a new language to articulate those ideas, a language that didn't have the baggage of totalitarianism with it. You know, if you told someone that you wanted to live in a socialist society, you had to explain to them why that wasn't going to be like the Soviet Union. But if you told someone that you want to live in a compassionate society, everybody can understand that, you know, and we need the tradition as well to fall back on. So yeah. how, do you, how do you move it forward from somewhere like that? And I think by trying to reboot the international was my aim, not to you know, push away what had happened in the past and clean it up or tidy it for history, but to, you know, regenerate it like Doctor Who for the, for the new challenges ahead.
0: I'm really interested in if whether you've come across other people who've, who've rewritten the lyrics to the Internationale in other languages. Well,
2: there's a really good Japanese version by a group called Monokone Soul Flower, which is really, it's kind of like a, uh, sort of like a, Tom Waitsy version of it that I like. I have no idea what lyrics they're singing because obviously they're singing mm-hmm. in Japanese. It doesn't sound like anything from um, the tradition, which is good. It's the version I most hear in my head when I think of the international. Their version. It's kind of like quite, quite kind of uh, chaotic, but it has the it has the the power still with it. You know, you can still tell that they really they really feel what they're singing about.
0: come across any you know any, any attempts to go back to the french
2: no i've not actually i've not come along other um other rewrites um every now and then i come across somewhere where they where they're talking about the international and they very often um cite my lyrics or print my lyrics but the the other lyrics that they're talking about are often the traditional lyrics the original mm-hmm. lyrics the french lyrics uh, literal translations of the french lyrics russian lyrics english lyrics and one of the nice things is that in the um, IWW songbook, Little Red Songbook, is my version is in there next to the original version, which you know for me is that's like a kind of a knighthood, isn't it? In in on the left, yeah. You know, it's kind of yeah. Really makes yeah. me feel that you know it it's not there to replace it. It's there to um, augment it. It's there to mm-hmm. you know lift it up again. And and you know you you pay your money, you take your choice. Sing it that way one week and my way the next week. It's not, you know. And people people often title it Billy Bragg's International. It's not Billy Bragg's Bloody International, it's the Bloody International, all right? It doesn't belong to anybody.
0: Thanks to Billy, John and Robert for helping us to go deep into the world of the Internationale. I totally love that in the true spirit of its name, it has united the world in song. It's particularly meaningful for me at Dash, where everything we do explores connections across borders, that this great song of hope and call to action, to quote Robert, has evolved and adapted across time and countries to maintain its relevance. We'll be back with more podcasts in the series on Bella Chow and No Pasaran. In the meantime, do explore our other European music-focused podcasts on Django Reinhardt and the songs of migrant workers. In fact, all of the Dash Arts podcasts are great, but then I'm quite biased. You can subscribe to our podcast via our website or wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you don't miss them. Do follow the show and share and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. The Dash Arts podcast was produced by Rachel Head. I'm Josephine Burton, and thank you for
1: listening.